Genesis is the book of beginnings. We get the book's name from the first word in the Hebrew text. The Greek word that gets translated from that Hebrew word is the word genosios or Genesis. It means beginning. Everything begins in Genesis. The universe, the solar system, the earth's atmosphere and hydrosphere, life, man, marriage, evil, language, government, culture, and of course, redemption. Every major Bible doctrine has its roots in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is the foundation on which the other 65 books of the Bible are built. That's why the enemies of God have tried so valiantly, vigorously, to attack the credibility of Genesis, but to no avail. The more we learn of valid, verifiable science, the more we learn of archaeology, the more confidence we gain in the Genesis account. Never forget, no less of an authority than our Lord Jesus Christ himself quoted from the book of Genesis and considered the Genesis record to be a historically reliable and scientifically accurate account of the origins of so many different things. Jesus held a literal interpretation of Genesis, and so should we. First one reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word translated created is the Hebrew word bara, from which comes, or which means, To create out of nothing, with no raw materials, just with the power of his word, God spoke, and the creation took place. Here is the first cause. Here is the prime mover. God begins to fashion the heavens and the earth with nothing but his word. Now, there is another Hebrew word that can be translated create. It's the word asah. And when you think of the word, think of our word, assemble, because both have similar meanings. If we were to borrow this podium, it means that we would produce it from nothing, out of thin air. But if we were to assah this podium, it means that we would go down to Home Depot, we would buy a few boards, a box of nails, maybe a little can of varnish, then we would put it all together, trim it out, spruce it up, and we would have assembled or assad this podium. Now here is where the plot thickens. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 17, we're told, In six days the Lord made or assad the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now in Genesis 1, the earth is created out of nothing. But in Exodus chapter 31, we're told that it was made out of existing materials. It was assembled. Which is it? Well, I believe it's both. In verse 2 we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Now this scene is not what we would expect. In chapter 1, each aspect of God's creation is considered good. In fact, when we get to verse 31, it's all summarized as very good. But here the earth is formless. It's shapeless. It's just a vast sea shrouded in darkness. Understand, idiomatically in Scripture, the sea 
is always evil. You remember when Jesus calmed the sea, he rebuked the wind and waves as he would a demon. Revelation 21 verse 1 tells us that in the new heaven and in the new earth, there is no more sea. You see, the sea is symbolic of evil. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18 casts a light here on verse 2. There Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. In Isaiah, the earth was not created in vain. That Hebrew word is the word tohu, which in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, is translated without form. Tohu usually describes the aftermath of judgment, a cataclysmic judgment and its consequences. Genesis says that the earth was created tohu, in vain. Isaiah says it was not. It was formed to be inhabited, which is it again? It's both. For some scholars believe that a gap of an indefinite period of time exists between verses 1 and verses 2 here in Genesis chapter 1. Think about it. When were the angels created? Genesis doesn't tell us. But in Job chapter 38, we're told, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, a term for the angels, shouted for joy? The implication is that the angels were created before God goes to work on the earth here in verse 2 of Genesis. Now you remember one of these angels sinned. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 describes the fall of Lucifer, the archangel, who we came to call Satan or the devil. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, referring to his demise. It's possible that Satan's fall brought about a judgment that damaged God's original creation. Some scholars believe that God created a beautiful earth and put Lucifer in charge. But when he rebelled, God brought cataclysmic judgments on the pre-Adamic world. And thus, in verse 2, we find essentially the recreating or the reassembling of the earth. Verse 1, bara, it's created from nothing. Verse 2, it's being now reassembled and made fit for God's crowning creation, which will be the man and the woman. There is an interesting Hebrew tradition which explains why Satan fell. It goes that he got wind of God's plan, God's plan to create man. And to give man dominion over the earth. Lucifer was proud. No way was he going to serve those little dust balls. You and I. And so he revolted. And he tries to thwart God's creation. It's interesting, he first appears in the sea, opposing the creation. 
And it could very well be that here in Genesis 1, verse 2, Satan is in these dark waters trying to thwart God's plan for creation. Job 26 speaks of creation in a very unexpected way. There Job says he hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He stirs up the sea with his power And by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. According to Job, God pierces a fleeing serpent as he creates the earth. And as he speaks and breaks up the storm. And brings light into the darkness. We don't usually think of creation as a battle. But I believe it was the first skirmish in a long-running war. A war between God and the serpent. The serpent appears again in Genesis chapter 3 to tempt Adam and Eve. If he can't stop creation, then it's his plan to spoil it. In Psalm 74, you can read about the sea serpent in the waters of the Red Sea opposing the exodus. The dragon appears at the end of the age in Revelation chapter 12 to attack Israel. In Revelation 13 verse 1, the Antichrist is depicted as a beast rising out of the sea. You see, the Bible is the story of a battle. Verse 2 tells us, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Literally, light be. Light was. Understand, light didn't develop over eons of time. God spoke it, and it appeared instantly. In his book, Genesis and the Big Bang, Gerald Schroeder theorizes that the term waters may refer to plasmas or premolecular soup. He theorizes that the Spirit of God energized and organized these subatomic particles into atoms. The plasmas would have given off ultraviolet light needed for the plant growth that appears in day three. Schroeder writes, With the binding of electrons in atomic orbits, the photons were free to travel. They burst forth, bathing the universe with light. The Bible reveals a similar account. The Spirit hovering over the waters and then suddenly, let there be light. Light be. Light was. This would explain how we get the light before the sun in day four. You know, light is one of the great mysteries of the universe. No one really knows what it is. At times it acts like a wave. At other times it acts like a particle. It's interesting that light can penetrate. Another substance without altering it or without marring it. It has almost a spiritual light quality. The Bible says that God is light. Light seems to be the unveiling of the glory of God. And again, don't get confused with the existence of light before the creation of the sun and stars. You remember Revelation 22 verse 5 states that in heaven there is no sun. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. God is the power plant. And if that's true at the end of the age, it could have well been true at the beginning. 
On day one, God unveiled his light. He released his energy into the natural realm. Then on day four, he harnesses the light and he concentrates it in the sun and stars. On day two, God created the firmament or the hydrologic system. This is really an amazing feat of engineering. Did you realize that the vapor above the earth weighs 54 trillion 460 billion tons, and God has suspended it in thin air. Quite a feat of engineering. In fact, we'll find out next week that before the flood, that vapor above the atmosphere could have been much thicker than it is today. On day three, God corralled the waters into seas, and he produced dry land. He then generated life, specifically plant life. He created the grass, the herbs, the fruit trees. Understand the third day marked a decisive victory in the battle of creation. God corralled the seas and dry land surfaced. Satan had to have opposed the emergence of the dry land because it would be out of the dust of the ground that God would create man. And so if he could keep the, wa- the land submerged under the water, then he could prohibit the creation of man. It's interesting that thousands of years later, another decisive victory is won on the third day. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He has become the first fruits of our resurrection. New life is now available to all those who trust in Jesus Christ. The parallels of the third day. On day four, God created the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. In verse 14, God says, let them be for signs and seasons. Now, we understand how the sun and stars and and moon and so forth determine seasons. But what about the signs? There is a theory that before it was corrupted by Satan, the Zodiac once taught the gospel. Psalm 147 verse 4 tells us that God counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. The stars get their names from God. The Zodiac, of course, is the path that the earth travels through the stars. Today it begins with Aries, but originally it began with Virgo. And isn't it interesting that the gospel also begins when a virgin conceives? Hey, Satan has corrupted the zodiac, and the Bible is clear. It forbids us ever consulting the stars. But it's also interesting that originally the stars may have spoken to us about the glories and wonders of God's redemptive plan. God put them there, he says, as signs as well as seasons. Let me make one more point about the creation of the stars. One reason astronomers assume that the universe is 15 to 20 billion years old is the distance between the earth and the stars. There are stars millions of light years away from us. And you remember from this morning, a light year is the distance that light travels in a year. So if we see a star 4 billion light years away, then the earth needs to be at least 4 billion years old. Or does it? Let me ask you a question. Be honest now. How many of you 
have ever thrown a roll of toilet paper over the limb of a tree. Now, be honest. How many of you have ever thrown a roll of toilet paper over the limb of a tree? You're guilty. You've been caught right here. Think about it. Perhaps God hurled the stars into their orbits while unrolling the light behind them. Starlight could have been created in transit, either before or as the star itself was being created. It's possible that God could have done it that way. There are other possibilities that preclude an old earth. How do we know that the speed of light travels at the same rate throughout the universe? There may be warps in space where light speeds up. We have no idea. No way of knowing. How do we know that the speed of light has remained constant over time? There is a very controversial theory. It's being advanced by an Australian astronomer named Barry Sutterfield. He's done research that suggests that the speed of light has decayed over time. He says that light traveled four times faster in the days of Abraham than it does today. There's so much that we just don't know. Day five. God fills the sky with birds. He fills the seas with fish. On day six, he creates the creepy crawlers, the insects and the land animals. And notice ten times in chapter one, we're told that God created everything according to its kind. Say that with me. According to its kind. Ten times we find that phrase in Genesis chapter 1. You see, God has created in the genetic makeup of life a degree of flexibility. Living things can adapt and do adapt to their environment. We call these adaptations mutations. But there are limits to these mutations. The genetic structure of living things is fixed so that life reproduces only within its natural family or its kind. And this is a good thing. You plant corn, you get corn. You plant green beans, you get green beans. It would be very confusing if you planted green beans and got tomatoes. Everything reproduces after its kind. Mutations are possible but not transmutations. Corn doesn't become tomatoes. A fish doesn't become a bird. Hey, I believe in mutations, but I don't believe in transmutations. Thank the Lord for mutations, really. Thank the Lord. I am so glad that all my kids turned out better looking than me. Good mutations. But hey, they're all still Adamses. Granted, at times they act like monkeys, but they're all still little Adamses. And they'll reproduce Adamses, and then those Adamses will reproduce more Adamses, each generation according to its kind. You see, this is the great failure of evolution. With all the thousands of fossils that have been discovered, there is a glaring absence of transitional forms. The missing link is still missing. God created 
everything according to its kind. In just six days now, God reassembles the earth. He makes it fit for his crowning creation, the man and the woman, which brings up an interesting question. Were these six days of creation, literal 24-hour days, or were they long periods of time or ages? The Hebrew word for day or yom appears in the Old Testament 1,424 times. And it is translated 51 different ways in the Old Testament. So the word yom by itself gives us no room to be dogmatic. But if you take these days as long geological ages of millions of years, you really develop a lot of problems. For example, plants are created on the third day. But a lot of these plants require pollination of insects to survive. But the insects don't appear until day five. So if the two days that separated these two events of creation consisted of millions of years, there's no ways that the plants that needed the insects would have ever made it. Lots of problems if you interpret these days as long geological ages. I personally believe that the language suggests six 24-hour periods of time. To me, the phrase, the evening and the morning, supports that idea. In fact, understand, if God Almighty wanted to create the earth in six minutes or six seconds, he could have done that as well. It's a marvel to me that he took six days. But here's another question. How long ago did those six days occur? Was it 4.5 billion years old? No one really knows. God was the only one present at the creation, and since he's chosen not to tell us how old and how long ago it was, apparently he doesn't think it's all that important. Besides, we don't know the age of the universe because we don't know how long of a gap existed between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2. Was it hours? Or was it billions of years? Again, we really don't know. It is possible that the universe is quite old, but the reassembling of the earth and the creation of man was a recent event. Recorded human history and the Bible's genealogies only take us back maybe 6,000 to 10,000 years ago. I believe that there are some very interesting scientific reasons to believe in a very young earth, even as young as 10,000 years old. If the speed of light has decayed over time, then it would throw off all of the atomic clocks, all of the radioactive dating techniques that are relied upon. Carbon-14 and its companions all have their problems anyway. Varying decay rates, assumptions about initial composition, seepage possibilities could all distort the accuracy of these methods, especially when it comes to really old ages. Another factor that points to the young earth, there's several factors. One would be the rate of decay of the earth's magnetic field. You can measure the decay rate. You can measure, you know, 
where it's at now, and you can see that there's no way that the earth could be 4.5 billion years old. The mineral composition of the oceans, the existence of short-period comets, there are all kinds of evidences that we could point to for a young earth. It's interesting that when Bob Hope interviewed Neil Armstrong, he asked the first moonwalker, before your historic mission, what was your greatest fear? Armstrong said that the astronauts had been warned of a huge layer of loosely compacted debris on the moon's surface. Scientists assumed that after billions of years, and since the moon had no protective atmosphere, then it would have been a little dusty. Space dust would have accumulated on its surface. And this is why NASA placed the lunar module its landing pads at the end of long, extended legs because they were expecting a layer of dust. They feared that it would sink, and so it needed to be extended on these long legs. Instead, there was so little dust that Armstrong had difficulty hammering in the American flag on the moon's surface. You see, the moon was covered not with billions of years of dust or even millions but just a few thousand years of cosmic dust. There's another point to consider. How old did Adam look the day after he was created? How old did he look? He was one day old. But did he look one day old? Obviously he didn't. He was the perfect human specimen. Probably looked 41, I would imagine. (laughs) He was created a mature man. You remember the trees in the Garden of Eden? They also appeared in mature form. They were created with fruit on their branches. No doubt God created eggs with yolks. The trees in the Garden of Eden probably had annular rings. Did Adam have a belly button? Well, if he did, it was an example of the appearance of age. You see, where there is physical evidence for extended ages in billions of years, it's possible that that it's the result of God creating the earth in a state of maturity giving it the appearance of age. That would make perfect sense. Notice in verse 26, the stage is now set for the capstone of creation. Earth systems have been reassembled to support human life. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All life was created according to its kind. The offspring reflects the parent. But God goes one step further with man. For man alone is made in the image of God. Man not only reflects the image of his earthly father, but he also bears the image of his heavenly father. 
Man was made in the image of God. In numerous ways, really. He was made a spiritual being, a moral being, a rational being, a creative being. God and man are both relational beings. They enjoy fellowship. Both are self-determining. We make our own choices. But I think, first and foremost, man was made in the image of God in that he was made to rule, to govern. In verses 28 and 29, God tells the man and woman, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. You see, man was given dominion over the earth, authority to rule over it. And it is this understanding that marks the difference between Western and Eastern civilization and the progress that each has made in our modern world. The West, reared on Judeo-Christian thought, has through the ages advanced in science and technology, learning ways to use nature for our own benefit. Why? Because the Bible teaches that man is separate from nature, and it's our job to subdue nature, to harness its power for our good, for our food, in essence. Whereas the East is dominated by pantheism. The belief that man is a part of nature, one with nature. And rather than subdue nature, Eastern religions teach that our role is to harmonize with nature, harmonize with our surroundings. And this is why cows roam freely in India while people die of starvation. Hinduism teaches its adherence to deify nature rather than subdue it. The differences between Western and Eastern civilization, you find them right here in Genesis. Chapter 2 paints a picture of man's new environment. The Lord personally plants a garden of delights just for the man and woman. The word Eden, by the way, means delights. And notice Adam had a job in the garden. He was to tend it. Now, we often think of paradise as a place void of work. Paradise, yeah, man, I'll swing in my hammock all day long. But not so. Work itself is not a curse. God made us for meaningful activity and service. Notice, though, that the man was made on the sixth day, told to tend the garden. But the fact he was made on the sixth day means that his first full day was the seventh day, or the day of rest. Isn't that interesting? Adam rested with God before he ever labored for God. And here's an important lesson for you and I. So often we want to jump out and begin to serve the Lord, but first, God wants us to learn to rest and rely. And trust in God's power rather than our own. 
a mist and four rivers watered the garden and water its fruit trees. Two of the trees are of special significance. Fruit from the tree of life seemed to ensure Adam would live forever. Fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was just the opposite. God said in verse 17 that if Adam ate of it, he would surely die. God placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil within Adam's reach as a way for Adam to demonstrate his love for God. You see, for love to be meaningful, it has to be volitional. It has to come of your own free will. If you love me, but you have no other choice but to love me, it's really a hollow gesture. It's a hollow love. Hey, if your wife said, I do, with a shotgun in her back, it'd really make you wonder, wouldn't it? Adam, therefore, was given the opportunity to demonstrate his love for God, his loyalty to God, by staying away from that tree. He could eat from all the other trees if he desired but not that one tree. And yet you know the story. He failed the test. He bit. And as God had warned, he died. He died spiritually and he died physically. Spiritually, Adam died instantly. Sin entered his heart and separated him from God. Physically, he died more slowly. His body began to deteriorate. Entropy, or the process of decay, began to affect not only Adam, but all of the physical universe. Paul said in Romans 8, verse 20, that the creation was subjected to futility. God's perfect world has suddenly been marred. Verse 7 recaps, though, Adam's birthday. We're told the Lord God formed man of the dust. God formed the man out of the dust. Understand the raw chemical components that make up the human body would probably cost you about $10. We really are nothing but dust and water. Dr. Mayo of the famed Mayo Clinic itemized a list of items that it would take to make a human body. He said it this way, enough potassium for one shot of a toy pistol, enough fat for seven bars of soap, enough iron for one large nail, enough sulfur to delouse a dog, enough lime to whitewash a chicken coop, enough magnesia for one dose of medicine, and enough phosphorus for a few boxes of matches. The total purchase would not fill more than a couple of grocery bags. Understand, man is so fragile. We are but dust. And yet, God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Guys, life, human life, is sacred. It comes from God. And human life, in utero and in old age, needs to be respected and it needs to be protected. In chapter 2, verse 19, God gave Adam the job of naming the animals. Imagine finding names for thousands of species of animals. 
Apparently, Adam's unfallen intellect had incredible capacities. Understand, too, that in ancient times, the privilege to name was a function of dominion or authority. You remember when the Babylonians took Daniel prisoner, the very first thing they did was they renamed him. It was their way of asserting their dominion or authority over Daniel. As Adam surveyed the animals, he named them. And again, it asserted his authority over them. And as they all walked in front of him, he observed that they all had companions. They, they all appeared to him in couples, male and female. And it was at that time that God suggested that perhaps man also needed a companion. Man needed a sidekick. You see, after all of his creation, God pronounced that it was good, except in verse 18, because there he says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. That was the one part of his creation that was not good. Not good that man be alone. Man needed a sidekick. It's been said that the creation of Eve was the first splitting of an atom. And it unleashed a force into the world that men have never been able to get under control. God performed the first surgery. And he took Eve from Adam's side. The word translated rib can refer to a bone or to a piece of skin or to a muscle. Anything just as long as it came from his side. Reminds me of little Billy who sat in Sunday school and he listened attentively to the story of Adam and Eve. But later that morning his stomach began to ache. And he complained to the teacher that he had a pain in his side. And she said, I'm sorry you're sick. What do you think is wrong? And he said, teacher, I think I'm going to have a wife. (laughs) Remember on the cross, a spear was thrust through Jesus' side. And out poured blood and water. The same blood that cleanses you and I of our sin. And isn't it interesting that God did to the last Adam, Jesus Christ, just as he did to the first. He took from the side of Jesus that which he would use to fashion for him a bride, his church. Isn't that beautiful? Hey, when God brought Eve, and notice, God brought Eve to Adam. Singles, listen. Don't waste your time running around trying to find your Eve. When it's time, God will bring her to you. You just prepare yourself and get your heart ready for the moment. But when God brought Eve to Adam, he was blown away. He took one look at her. He said, this is the perfect companion. He looked at her and he just eyeballed her and he said, Whoa, man. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. And and it just stuck. Woman. (laughs) She came from his side. 
And she became the perfect sidekick. I can imagine Adam putting his arm around Eve, looking her in the eye, whispering in her ear, Baby, you're the only one in the world for me. (laughs) Now, let me make an observation. Whatever it was that God took from Adam to make Eve, From then on, there was something missing in the man that only the woman could fill. Ladies, I know it comes as no surprise, but your husband is not all there. (laughs) There's a big part in him that's missing that only you can fill. I love that country song, Little Rock. There's a line in it that says, without you, baby, I'm not me. I like that. That's what Adam said to Eve. Husbands and wives need each other to be all that God intends for them to be. As that famed theologian Rocky Balboa said to Adrian, I got gaps. You got gaps. Together we got no gaps. And God has given to you your spouse to round you off, to balance you out. To complete you. Actually, the naming of the woman is one of the most beautiful and romantic passages in all Scripture. Remember, get close to your wife on this one. This is is sweet. Remember, the privilege to name was a function of dominion and authority. And the fact that Adam was allowed to name the woman tells us that God had placed him in authority over her. But here's what I want you to see. The Hebrew word translated man is the word ish. And the word translated woman is the same word, but it's in the feminine form, isha. Adam had authority over Eve, but instead of naming her and asserting that authority, he treated her as his equal because he gave her His own name. Isn't that beautiful? That's so sweet of Adam. (laughs) Matthew Henry commented, The woman was taken from Adam's side, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected, and from close to his heart to be loved. This is how every husband should view his wife. Verse 25 gives us God's formula for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice the pattern. First, you leave. You leave mama. You leave daddy behind. You don't go running back to mom and daddy. You leave, you form your own family. You learn to work things out together. Second, you cleave. You make a lifetime commitment. Till death do us part. And then you weave a new life together. You learn to consider one another. You learn to... Be conscious of making plans with the other person in mind. You function as a unit. Fail to either leave, cleave, or weave. 
and you'll grieve, seethe, and probably teethe. (laughs) At the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve have it made. Man, they've got it made. A ranch house in paradise. All the fruit that they can munch. And on top of that, they're madly in love with each other. But in chapter 3, the wheels come off. They make the mistake that a lot of couples make. They stop putting God first in their hearts and first in their marriage. And look who they meet in verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Here he is again, the serpent. In chapter 1, he tries to stop creation. Now he tries to spoil it. Notice Eve's first mistake is to even listen to the devil to begin with. Guys, Satan is an experienced tempter and you are no match for his wiles. The key is not even to get into a conversation with Satan. I've heard it said, when Satan knocks on your door, let Jesus answer. (laughs) Notice, though, that we have here a snake that talks. And the amazing thing is that Eve doesn't even act surprised when he does. And some commentators have suggested that before the fall of man, animals had the capacity to talk. It's interesting that research is being done now over at Emory at the Yerkes Primate Center where they're trying to teach chimpanzees rudimentary forms of speech and communication. Perhaps they're trying to tap into some kind of latent capacity that was within the animals before the fall. Imagine carrying on a conversation with your dog. Listen. This is a good thing. If your wife could talk to your dog all day, then guys, the pressure would be off you when you came home. (laughs) Just go sit down a lazy boy and not have to say a word the rest of the evening. See how how far we have fallen from perfection? From paradise? Satan deceives Eve. He makes God out to be the bad guy. Notice that. That's what Satan does. The serpent says to Eve in verse 4, You will not surely die. Notice Satan tempts Eve to doubt God's word. Next he says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. In other words, he's just trying to deprive you of something good. Now he's wanting her to doubt God's love. He's saying, God wants to keep you hemmed in. God wants to deprive you of your freedom. God wants to stunt your growth. If you really want to find yourself, you need to get out from under God's, you know, constrictions. He's making God out to be the bad guy. Satan is the good guy. Satan promises Eve autonomy. She doesn't need God's authority. She can run her own life. She can, in essence, be her own God. She doesn't know that she's about to throw all the good things away and become a prisoner to both sin and Satan. 
Guys, when Satan throws up doubts about God's word and God's love, don't bite. God's word is true. God's love is sure. God is not trying to rob you of anything good. God wants the best and highest for your life. And the things that he tells us not to do are things that he's protecting us from. Dangers that he's trying to prohibit us from encountering. What God says is true and why he says it is because he loves you. Look at what happens in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Notice here the threefold temptation. It reoccurs throughout the scripture. It was first good for food. In other words, do this and you'll feel great. Feel great. Second, it was pleasant to the eyes. Hey. You'll look great. Get that baby in your hand and you'll look great. And it was desirable to make one wise. Take one bite of this and you'll be great. These same three temptations show up over and over again throughout the Bible. Satan really hasn't changed his techniques at all. 1 John 2 verse 16 articulates them well. Satan tempts you with the desire to feel great, to look great, to be great. But beware, because he really wants to rob and steal and destroy. As soon as Eve and Adam eat the forbidden fruit, they become aware of their nakedness. Up until that point, they've been oblivious to themselves. They've both been God-centered and other-centered people, but now they become self-centered. That's what sin does. That's the heart of sin. You spell sin, S-I-N, and at the heart is that little letter, I. Now, Adam and Eve's first response to their sin was to hide. Made little fig leaf bikinis. Their second response was to hurl. Well, if I can't cover it up, I'll pass the buck. I'll blame somebody else. And their descendants have been hiding and hurling ever since. Adam was even arrogant enough to blame God for his sin, in essence. In verse 12, he says, The woman, you gave me. She gave me of the tree and I ate. God blames, Adam blames God. You gave me that woman. Then he blames Eve. It wasn't Eve's fault. Husbands, has there been some hurling going on in your house? Think about it. It's not really your wife's fault. You need to take some personal responsibility if you want her to respect you as the leader of your home. Eve blames the devil. Oh, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. Stop blaming the devil. He gets far more credit than he deserves. You made a choice. You didn't have to do it. Take personal responsibility. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the devil. And the old blame game got started. Been going ever since. Now in verse 14, God hands out the sentences. 
The snake is destined to do belly flops the rest of his life. Here's the origin of the expression, bite the dust. The snake will crawl on his belly. But notice the implication. If crawling is his punishment, then did the snake originally sport legs? Could have been. Herpetologists point to the nubs on a snake's skeleton as proof that they once had appendages. This may explain the oriental preoccupation with dragons. What is a dragon? Snake with legs. Revelation 12 verse 9 pictures Satan as a dragon. Verse 15, notice it. It's one of the most important verses in Scripture. There God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is a bizarre term. A woman has no seed. There are many who believe this is a reference to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman is Jesus. And on the cross, Satan bruised his heel, inflicted upon Jesus a non-fatal blow. But Jesus bruised the serpent's head. Jesus stripped Satan of his authority. On the cross, Jesus struck the decisive blow, the knockout punch. Satan has no more power over the heart that trusts in Jesus Christ. Satan has bitten the dust. Eve's sentence is twofold. Pain in childbirth and the tough task of submitting to an imperfect authority, her husband. In essence, you might say that Eve was sentenced to labor pains and laboring with a pain. Verse 16 says of her husband, he shall rule over you. That's tough. This is why Paul says to the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that a woman shouldn't teach or exercise authority over a man in the family and in the church. You see, it goes back to Genesis. Eve led Adam astray in a doctrinal matter. And thus in the future, God appoints the man to take the lead in the home and in the church. I think when we submit to these biblical roles for husbands and wives, we teach half the gospel. We point people back to original sin, to the need for a Savior. I think it's important that we observe these roles. Adam's sentence is last. From now on, he'll encounter thorns and thistles in the course of his work. Now remember, work is not a curse. At first, Adam enjoyed his job. Tending the garden was a breeze. But now he finds himself facing constant obstacles. Thorns and thistles are in his way. Work has gone from being a breeze to being a burden. God says to Adam in verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You see, before man sinned, work was no sweat, but no more. Because of his sin, man would never again get out of his job all that he would put into it. Whenever he went to work, he would always leave a little something of himself on the job until he had literally worked himself to death. We're all doing that today. God says in verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. As he worked in the dust, 
He was leaving a little of himself behind. Every day went to work. Now, this means that if you've been bouncing around from job to job to job looking for the perfect situation, then you might as well forget it. It doesn't exist. There is no perfect job. It goes back to the curse. Every occupation, every vocation, every corporation has its share of thorns and thistles. Obstacles that are going to irritate, that are going to aggravate, that are going to frustrate. And we need to accept it and we need to allow God to use the thorns to teach us to depend on Him. Notice in verse 21, Adam and Eve hide their nakedness with designer fig leaves. But God isn't into fig wear. Instead, He clothes them in animal skins, which necessitated the death of an animal, or in essence, a sacrifice. You see, at first, Adam and Eve tried to atone for their sin with the work of their own hands. And people do this today. They sew together little religious deeds and Charitable works, good works, in an attempt to try to cover their sin. But God insists on a sacrifice. You remember he told Adam, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. And for sin to be forgiven, a sacrifice is required. Chapter 3 ends on a pathetic note, a sad note for sure. Adam and Eve are driven out of their garden paradise. This is truly a paradise lost. And in verse 24, we're told, So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But even this, guys, was an act of mercy on the part of God. Apparently, if Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life in their sinful state, they would have remained in that fallen state apart from God forever. And so God barred their way to the tree of life until Jesus could come and pay the penalty for our sin. It's interesting in Revelation that one day again, that way will be opened. And those who know Jesus will partake of the tree of life and live forever in fellowship with God. And so there we have the first three chapters of Genesis.